In case you've been paying attention for the last few months, I decided to wear this purple shirt today so I don't have to change for communion this morning. I want to begin this morning by asking you a simple question. What is it that you absolutely love about being a Christian? Take a moment and answer this inside of your group. Or if you're sitting there watching the recording by yourself, just sit there and think about it for a moment. What is it that you love about being a follower of Jesus? Come on, say it. Say it in your group. Don't look at one another weird. Come on, just get it out there. All right, even though I'm not a part of your group, I can almost guarantee the answers when something like this. We absolutely love Jesus. We love gathering at church on Sunday. We love worship music. You love prayer. You love knowing that your sins are forgiven. You love that you know that you are going to go to heaven when you die. And you are really hoping that God will reunite you with your favorite pet one day when you get there. But I can almost guarantee one answer that wasn't given in any of your groups or entered into any of your minds. The law of God. When is the last time you heard a fellow follower of Jesus say, Oh, how I love the law of God. Maybe never. What is foreign to our ears and forgotten by our lips is a common refrain in the Word of God. Throughout the pages of Scripture, and especially in the pages leading up to the birth of Jesus on the left side of your Bible, there is a common refrain that is expressed with no reservation and the greatest of joy. Oh, how I love your law. Please turn in your Bible, whether by paper or digital app, to Psalm 119, verses 97 through 104. The psalmist David says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding Therefore, I hate every false way. Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the whole Bible, 176 verses, is devoted to one thing, to proclaim how good and great the law of God is. It is an acrostic poem that David wrote where he took the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and wrote eight verses that all begin with that letter. 
Then he went to the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet and wrote eight verses that begin with that letter until he got through all of the letters. And David could not run out of good and great and wonderful things to say about the law of God. But this is not the only place that David proclaims how wonderful and spectacular the law of God is. Look at Psalm 19, verses 7 through 14. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So why all this talk about the law this morning? And it's because here in a few weeks, we are going to embark on a new sermon series out of 1 Timothy. We have subtitled 1 Timothy, Instructions to a Young Church. And in the first sermon, in the eighth verse of the first chapter, we are going to come to this verse which says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Kevin is going to answer this question of how to use the law lawfully in a few weeks. But as Kevin and Theo and I were discussing the sermon series, we asked ourselves, do people even know what the law of God is? Do they even know how to interact with the law of God? And so we decided that we needed a prequel of two sermons to build a foundation for our church so that we can instruct you according to what Paul is going to tell you and how you can use the law lawfully. So in this week, we are going to spend our time asking this question and answering this question, why don't we love the law of God? And then in two weeks, when I come back to preach, we are going to look at this statement, why we should love the law of God. Now, before I go on to answer question one about why don't we love the law of God, I want to inform you of the intent and focus by which we will be speaking today about the law of God. When some people talk about the law, the law of God, they mean the first five books of the Bible, which contains the narrative sections of Scripture as well as the 613 commandments. We're talking about Genesis. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is more famously known by a single word called the Torah in Hebrew, which means law or instruction or rule. 
Sometimes when people speak about the law of God, they are referencing the 613 commandments alone that Hebrew scholars have identified are the things that God says we can, cannot, should, and should not do as His covenant people. Some people, when they talk about the law of God, they will limit it down to the Ten Commandments. So it is definitely no less than the Ten Commandments, but it is no more than the first five books of the Bible. And for the sake of time and context from which Paul will follow his statement in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, that we will see in a few weeks, we are going to focus on the Ten Commandments because they are the foundation and bedrock of God's law, to which all believers can agree is included any time that the law is mentioned in the Bible. So on to our question, why don't we love the law of God? Point number one, and let me just say, if you are a note taker and you like points, today is going to be the day for you. Because I have seven points for you this morning. I am blowing up the three-point sermon. Number one, why don't we love the law of God? Because it is foreign to our ears. Let me ask you a question. How often over the course of your life have you heard a sermon from the Old Testament? There's a good chance that those who go to church and those who don't go to church might have the exact same answer. Zero. It is not uncommon for many people, even those who go to church, to have never heard a sermon. Or at best, rarely have they heard a sermon preached from the Old Testament. So let me ask you this. Have you ever heard a sermon on the Torah? Have you ever heard a series of sermons coming out of the first five books of the Bible? The foundational covenant that guided the daily lives of Jewish people and the nation of Israel to which the biblical story is built upon. When is the last time you heard a sermon on the Ten Commandments? A podcast any teaching whatsoever. Because the law of God is foreign to our ears, it is also foreign to our minds. When is the last time that you, as an individual, spent any time whatsoever pondering the Ten Commandments? How many of you could name all ten commandments? If we pause the video right now and we put you on the spot and we told you your college degree was on the line or your next job promotion was on the line, could you name the ten commandments? A recent poll shows that only 14% of America can actually name the ten commandments. Let me say this to you. You can't love what you don't know. Imagine this scenario with me for a moment. My wife and I have been married for 17 years and two months. 
And we met one year from the day we got married. June 7th, 2002 is the day we met. We met at a spiritual retreat in West Africa in Sali, Senegal at a resort on the beach. That is where we first came into one another's presence. But I want you to imagine that before she and I met, her roommate, Lee, who was her best friend at that time, imagine that Lee came up to me and she said, Daniel, don't you just love Leah? And I would say, no, I don't even know her. But she may go on to say, Daniel, she is the most wonderful, spectacular human being that God has ever created on the female side of the human race. And she could go on and on about how great and godly and good she is, but it would do nothing to move my heart to say, wow, I love that woman. But now, having gotten to know her and to be in her presence for the last 18 plus years, I can now wholeheartedly agree with that statement that my wife is the most spectacular female that God has ever happened to create. I would say, I love her. She is wonderful. She is spectacular. I can now see everything that Lee would have seen in that scenario. And it's because I know her. I love her because I know her. And it may be in the fact that you and the church as a whole, we do not love the law of God because we don't know the law of God. So therefore, in case you have never been introduced into the law of God and your ears have never heard the law of God, the foundational Ten Commandments given to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, I am going to read them for you today. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gate. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. 
You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now that you have been introduced to the Ten Commandments, I hope and pray that you grow to love them. Reason number two why we don't love the law of God is because we don't like being told what we can and cannot do. Commandment number one tells us that you shall have no other gods before God Himself. This commandment, taken to its logical conclusion and expanded in all of what it contains, tells us this. It tells us who we can and cannot worship. Commandment number two tells us how we can worship. Commandment number five tells us whom we must give honor, that we owe our parents honor just because they are our parents. And commandment 10 says you cannot covet. Guess what? That means you can't covet someone else's life on Instagram. You can't covet someone else's home on HGTV. You can't covet someone else's grade. You can't covet someone else's job, someone else's smarts, someone else's girlfriend or boyfriend or the food that they get to post in their photo. The Scripture is very clear that it is okay to wish to have a big house but it is not okay to wish you had someone else's big house. Each and every time we as human beings desire something that someone else has, are we not coveting what God has given them? How often do we break this commandment of covetousness each and every day in our lives? And because of that, we don't like being told what we can and cannot do. But even if it were just as simple as obeying these commandments, and polls have shown that people, are, people actually think they are really good at obeying and keeping these commandments in their daily lives, Jesus expands upon the commandments themselves and gets to the heart of the issue in the greatest sermon ever preached in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And Jesus says it is more than just being obedient to the commandment, but it is the heart underlying the commandment. And if we go and we dive in and read what Jesus says as He expounds upon these commandments of God, we will often find that we do not like what we see because Jesus exposes our hearts when it comes to obedience to the Ten Commandments and He shows us how short we fall. 
Reason number three why we don't love the law of God is because we don't like what it reflects about us. Made popular by the Reformers is the threefold use of the law. That the law of God serves to reflect, to restrain, and to reveal. It reveals to us the nature and the character of God. It restrains our behavior from doing what we should not. And it reflects to us the status of our sin, the status of our soul before God. And what it reflects to us is that we are sinners. And this is one of the hardest things for a human being to to grasp and also accept. And so the next time you hear a politician, a celebrity, or anyone that has a grand public persona, someone who has fallen from grace, someone who has done something really bad, I want you to listen to the words that come out of their mouth. And I can almost 100% guarantee they will say something like, I made a mistake, and I am sorry for the mistake that I made. Because they cannot bear to grasp and to admit that they are a sinner who has sinned against God and has sinned against their fellow human being. And so when it comes to the law of God, we don't like what it reflects about us when we look into it. Because as we go through Scripture, we find verses for those who have broken the law where Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitfully wicked and beyond cure. Isaiah 64, 6 that says all of our righteous deeds are like dirty minstrel cloth in the sight of God. Romans 5.10 tells us because of our sin, we are enemies of God. Ephesians 2.3 tells us that by our very nature, we are children of wrath. And Jesus, soft, sweet, gentle, feathered product in His hair, never a hair out of place, perfectly manicured beard, who likes to sit and love on the little children, Even He has harsh things to say about us in our sin. In Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 23, He says to the crowd, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. When is the last time that you called your own sin evil? When is the last time you heard someone else call someone else's sin, evil. We will avoid that term with all that we can. Well, sure, we, we put Jeffrey Dahmer in the category of evil and those who have committed mass murder in the category of evil. 
But we cannot dare to put the average, everyday human being into the category of evil, though here Jesus just says that's exactly what our sin is and what we are when we sin against God. We do not like what the law of God reflects about us. Point number four of why we don't love the law of God is because we've probably had a bad experience. And maybe it is you're having a bad experience right now. Because probably at some point in time in your life, if you've come across a zealous Christian, they might have pointed out to your sin in a way to where they weaponized the law of God. And they beat you over the head with it. They battered you with it. They sliced and diced you up and just showed you how great your sin was in their eyes and in God's eyes as well. And I want to say this can cause deep wounds and scars when other human beings on a horizontal plane beat us over the head with a law and leave us to wallow in our pity and our misery and our suffering because we have sinned greatly. So just to recap so far, the reasons we don't love the law of God is because we don't know it. We don't like being told what we can and cannot do. If we have looked into what we don't like, what we see uh, when we look in the mirror of the law, someone along the way has weaponized the law to make me feel really bad about myself. And if that weren't enough, almost everything we've ever heard on the subject of the law tends to shade or state directly that to promote the law is legalism. And though we may not know exactly what that means, it sounds really bad. So point number five of why we don't love the law of God is because we've been told that to adhere to or to follow or to stress the law would be legalism. I'm going to give you a very simple, basic definition of legalism this morning, and hopefully it appears on the screen before me. Legalism is attempting to be justified through obedience. What the Bible says is humanity's greatest problem is that it has sinned against a holy God and has been declared guilty. And what it needs in order to be reconciled to God is to be, put in, is to be put into right standing. To say, you are not guilty. You need to be justified. And so legalism is the belief or the attempt that a person can be justified through obedience. By obeying the law or simply by being a good person. And this happens to even the most irreligious people in the world. Because if you ask them, if there is a God that exists, and you go and you stand before Him one day, and He were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What is your plan? And almost every single time you will get this answer, because I am a good person, because my good deeds will outweigh my bad. Folks, this is legalism. 
any attempt at trying to be justified by the things you do is the definition of legalism. The point is to save oneself. It is good works without believing that God justifies us by faith alone. John Piper issues a simple explanation when he says, The essence of legalism is when faith is not the engine of obedience. But let me show you that to promote the law is not necessarily legalism. The subpoint to the law equalism not the law does not equal legalism is that love is a command of the law. Right now we are stressing the need to love. We recognize that the world needs love. But do you know and do you understand and do you realize that love is a command of the law? And we should not shrink back from stressing the need to be obedient to this command to love. Look at the Word of God in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. In one of the most famous passages from the Old Testament, Hear, O Israel, called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Jesus, when He was walking on this earth, was asked by the scribes and the Pharisees, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? You know where Jesus went? Right here. That you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is just like it. To love your neighbor as yourself. For everything hangs on these two commandments. And if it's never been pointed out to you, if you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four are in a vertical direction toward God, and the last six are in a horizontal direction toward your neighbor. And throughout His teaching, Jesus emphasized that the, the command to love was something that we should stress. It is something that Jesus stressed that we would obey the law by Obeying this commandment to love. Look at what he says in John chapter 14, verses 15 through 21. And look, notice how it's conditional. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Look at what he says in verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. In the same vein of teaching, look at what he says in chapter 15, verses 10 and 11. If you keep my commandments, once again conditional, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. 
Notice that Jesus says, your joy is directly tied to you obeying the commandments of God. Church, one of the things that we cannot be afraid to do is to land on law. Never as a means of meriting justification, but as the proper expression of having received it. If we want to love Christ as He deserves and as He desires, we will keep His commandments, which is what He says in John 14, verse 50. And that means as we keep in step with the Spirit, we would do well to remember the Ten Commandments, which are foundational for all the others. Let me say to you that yes, it is true that legalism is a problem in the church. But let me also say to you, so is antinomianism. This is your big word for the day. Anti-namos. Anti-against namos, the Greek word for law. Anti-law. This now leads us into point number six of why we don't love the law of God. Because we have been told that we are not under law, but under grace. And let me state, this is absolutely true but so often it is grossly misapplied to our lives. Let me give you this illustration. C.S. Lewis, who I'm sure everyone has heard of, was an avowed atheist who by his own testimony and recollection underwent a miracle conversion one day when going from his house to the zoo in a car. And he said, along the way, I became a believer. I don't know how it happened. It just did. Many times there had been promptings from his friend, J.R.R. Tolkien. Many discussions had happened. None of them had been effective. But then one day, God regenerated C.S. Lewis's heart. But upon his regeneration... And for a long while, in the beginning stages of his regeneration, he said there was one thing he just could not grasp or fathom. He could not grasp or fathom David's love for the law. He did not understand how David could be so in love with the law and why it was so good to love the law. Until one day he said he was walking through a field, a field of muck, a field of of, of mire and mush, And it was so hard to trudge every step across that field. And then finally he came and he put his foot on solid ground. And by putting his foot on that solid ground, how nice and pleasant it was to have a firm place to rest his foot. And how much easier it was to now walk along to where he was going because of that firm path. And he said, That is what David was in love with. That is why David loved the law. And that is why we should love the law. It is because now, because the law of God is a firm place for us to put our feet and to walk along this life. That's why so many times in the Psalms, when talking about the law of God, that it is a level path. It is not up or down. It is not crooked. It is a straight path. 
It is a light unto our path. All of these wonderful things is because the law of God is the firm place that we can put our feet so that we can walk in this life. And that's why Jesus says you should obey it. And that's how your joy can be full by obeying the law of God. But let me say what we felt about the law was accurate before our conversion and what many people feel because the law rests on top of us. The weight of the law crushes us. It's kind of like being buried alive, but yet we're buried dead, but yet we are kind of alive. And its weight is upon us. There's nothing we can do to get out from under its weight. But the moment that God enacts regeneration into our life, the moment God infuses our life with faith and we are resurrected and we spring to life from the dead, it's not as if we do away with the law, but now we walk on top of the law as the firm foundation for our lives by which we can live lives that we know are pleasing to a holy God. The law no longer crushes us but is now the foundation upon which we can walk to live a joy-filled life. And in his book, The Ten Commandments, which I would highly recommend, Kevin DeYoung says this. He says, I don't hear anyone saying, let's continue in sin that grace may abound. And if you're familiar with the Bible, Romans 6.1, Paul addresses this issue that we've been given all of this grace. And some people are saying, well, let's just sin so that grace may abound. Because now we know that our sin can never go further than God's grace. So let's just see how gracious this God will be. And he's saying, like, well, we don't normally hear that in church. Some places you hear it, it's a little bit crazy. And he says, that's the worst form of antinomianism. But he says, strictly speaking, antinomianism simply means no law. And some Christians have very little place for the law in the pursuit of holiness. One scholar says about an antinomian pastor from 17th century England, he believed that the law served a useful purpose in convincing men of their need of a Savior. Nevertheless, he gave it little or no place in the life of a Christian since he held that free grace is the teacher of good works. Now, let me say, this is most often how people deal with the law today. They will tell you the purpose of the law is only for showing you your need of a Savior. And let me say to you, it is necessary to see the law so it helps you see your need of a Savior. But the law does not end there. He goes on to say, emphasizing free grace is not the problem. The problem is in assuming that good works will invariably flow from nothing but a diligent emphasis on the gospel. And this happens all the time in the church. You just need more gospel, more gospel, more gospel. He says, the irony is that if we make every imperative into a command to believe the gospel more fully, we turn the gospel into one more thing we have to get right, and faith becomes the one thing we need to be better at. If only we really believed, obedience would take care of itself. No need for commands or effort. But the Bible does not reason this way. The Bible has no problem with the word, therefore. 
grace, grace, grace. Therefore, stop doing this. Start doing that and obey the commands of God. Good works should always be rooted in the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. But I believe we are expecting too much from the flow and not doing enough to teach that obedience to the law from a willing spirit as made possible by the Holy Spirit is the proper response to free grace. He goes on to say, For as much as Martin Luther derided the misuse of the law, he did not reject the positive role of the law in the believer's life. The Lutheran formula of concord is absolutely right when it says, We believe, teach, and confess that the preaching of the law is to be urged with diligence, not only upon the unbelieving and impenitent, but also upon true believers who are truly converted, regenerate, and justified by faith. Preachers must preach the law without embarrassment. Parents must insist on obedience without shame. The law can and should be urged upon true believers not to condemn, but to correct and promote Christ's likeness. Both the indicatives of Scripture and the imperatives are from God for our good and given in grace. Let me state it very clearly. The Bible condemns both salvation by works and lawlessness. Jesus says in Matthew 7, near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that there will be people who say to Him, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these wonderful things in Your name? And what is Jesus' response to them? Away from me, you workers of lawlessness. The Bible condemns both salvation by works and lawlessness. My seventh and final point today of why we don't love the law of God is this. It is because we are sinners in need of great grace. It is really hard to admit the depth of our sin. It is really hard to admit how short we fall of the holy standard of God. This is why people will never say that they've committed adultery. They'll say they had an affair. We just can't admit to ourselves that we are sinners. But let me say to you today, if you are watching this, the first step in becoming free is to admit that you are a sinner before a holy God. And that because you are a sinner before a holy God, you are in desperate need of great grace. As I spent time trying to think how to wrap up this sermon, the passage came to mind that I referenced earlier and I think is just the one that sums it up the best. Ephesians 2, 1-10. 
Paul, speaking to the church, reminds them of this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It is hard to admit, if you are not a follower of Jesus, that you are dead in your trespasses. If you are not a follower of Jesus, it is hard to admit that you are currently following the prince of the power of the air, Satan. It is hard to admit that you are living according just to what you want to do. And because of that, you have proven by your nature you are a child of wrath. And church, for you who are believers... It may have taken you a really long time to accept that fact. But take hope. Grab hope. Hold on to hope in the most magnificent way. Because after those three verses stating how horrible our condition is, how hopeless it seemed, these, on, on these two words, everything changes when Paul says, but God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Church, do you see this hope? Do you hear this good news emanating from the Word of God? That God, and God alone, not, not, nothing to do with you, God alone had mercy upon you. Today, if you are not a follower of Jesus, God is offering mercy to you. He is offering great love to you. That even though you were dead, or that you may be dead if you're not a believer, He wants to make you alive together with Christ Jesus. He wants to save you totally by grace, apart from any works that you have to do. And look what he says. And I want to say this especially to you if you are a believer of Jesus and you are really struggling with sin. If you are in the depths of some of the greatest sin in your life and you are struggling to overcome it and you are overwhelmed by guilt and shame even though that has all been washed away and the Bible says that God has forgotten your sins. He has thrown them into the sea of forgetfulness. They are as far as the east is from the west. I want you to remember, even in the state of your great sin, he says, He has already raised you up with Him. He has already seated you in the heavenly place in Christ Jesus. And His plan for you, even though you may be struggling mightily, is that forever and ever and ever that He could show you and will show you the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. 
though you may be stained with sin. God in His great mercy is going to do nothing but pour out upon you the immeasurable riches of His grace. Though you may feel as dirty as you can be sitting here in this place, the Bible says He has already placed you and seated you in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Take hold of that hope and that love. And then it concludes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Your obedience will never get you here. It is simply a gift of God. It's not a result of your works. And this was done so that no human being could boast that they were better than anyone else. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so church, let me say to you, those good works are found in the law of God. In being obedient to the commandments of God. That if you want your joy to be full, if you want to find firm footing for the path of life as you walk one day into eternity, you will find that firm footing upon the law of God. You will find joy in the law of God. And I pray, I pray with the deepest prayer that I can pray that you would come to this day and over the course of your life like the psalmist David, you would regularly say, Oh, how I love the law of God. Let us pray. Father, your word is good. Your word is right. Your word is true. Your word is holy. Father, May we be obedient to your word. Not because we have to, but because we get to. Because we recognize that because of the great grace given to us, we want to live and we want to be like Jesus. And how else do we imitate him except for walking as he walked and be obedient, being obedient to your commandments? And this is done not to bind us up. But as James, the brother of Jesus, said, is to set us free because we look into the perfect law of liberty. Father, for those who are not yet followers of Jesus, my prayer is that you would convert their hearts, that you would infuse grace into their lives, that they would repent of their sin, acknowledge that Jesus is King, that He is the only way of salvation and that they would live for you the rest of their days. It's in Jesus' name we pray.